You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. I won't lie. In the past few years, whenever Mother's Day rolls around, I'm awash in grief. I miss my mother so ferociously, the phrase deep hunger is only a mild gesture in the direction of what I actually feel. I so long to talk to her. When she was in palliative care in the last few months of her life, I told my mother I loved her daily. She did the same until she no longer had enough breath for speech. And then she slid her hand slowly across her chest, allowing it to drop at last over her heart. But I would be lying if I said our relationship was perfect. It wasn't. I had to learn, though, that even if how my mother loved me didn't necessarily resonate or jive with how I wanted or needed to be loved, she still did. I just learned to appreciate how much she offered to me. Mothering, that relationship that sometimes exists between mothers and their children, doesn't move in a straight line, but shifts around in these complex, complicated, sometimes yes, even outright abusive ways. I even know of people who rarely communicate with their mothers, and still others who have severed ties with their mothers completely. It makes me think a little of the 1999 Almodovar film, all about my mother. I don't care what age you are. If you're listening to this and you haven't seen this classic film, I insist you do it immediately. Well, once this episode is over, that is. (laughs) Well, scrolling through my Facebook page reminds me that mothering may be approached far more broadly. It is assumed in all kinds of relationships by all kinds of people. I, for one, also sent... Happy Mother Day wishes to my friends who have cats in their household. And yes, also my dog-owning friends. I remember them a little bit later, but I did remember them too. Sometimes we can engage in caring and loving acts interestingly associated with mothering, if not mothers. By the way, in all of this, I really do think it's fascinating that we often still associate mothering with nurturing. We don't really say fathering to suggest care, after all. It suggests its patriarchal origins. I also reflect on all the wonderful, wonderful friends by whom I've been surrounded, who have supported and loved me, and I trust I've poured out the same kind of love and care for them too. And yet, sometimes those acts are all for naught. There are just some people who can't give you love, you know what I mean? Nor can they feel all the love you bear them, no matter what kind of emotional calisthenics you perform. It's kind of like a half-full, half-empty situation in which one might choose to see loving, motherly gestures as always deficient. Still, that's a reminder that the act of mothering, whether or not you are a mother, is often associated with the ability to love and care for someone else an act that is renewed daily 
and as importantly, as we enter into maturity, that needs to be reciprocal. Mothering is what we often receive, but hopefully a kind of caring we also extend to others. It's sometimes harder for children to understand the reciprocity involved in such relationships, which explains why adults are not necessarily mature and loving beings. They're accustomed to being on the receiving end and don't know or can't even recognize that they're not actually engaged in what Hannah McGregor explains in her book as networks of relation. Her book, A Very Sentimental Education, published by Wilfrid Laurier Press, is the first of four books in a range of genres I have on the roster for today's episode, in part in honor of Mother's Day, but also largely to speak to the subject of mothering and motherhood. This particular book is a collection of thoughtful essays or ruminations about a series of subjects related to care, love, and loss, which she interweaves with theory on the subject, sometimes calling upon Indigenous epistemologies in relation to kinship to explain her points of view. The essay titles are suggestive. Words with friends, hashtag relatable, or getting to know you, and then also coming back to care. The essay that I'm specifically focusing on today is Caring Ferociously, the personal favorite. The chapter opens with this very suggestive phrase, quote, meaning is a thing I make with others, end quote. This is a direct call to her readers, allowing us to have some sense of agency over what we come away with after having read her essay. We are, she adds, who we care for and who cares for us. She thus pushes against the idea of individualism, on which, by the way, so much of academia is predicated. And yes, she is an academic, I should add, at Simon Fraser University. If we think in terms of kinship, the paradigm changes. Kinship isn't just about blood ties either. It's about who we decide we're related to and how we care for them. The how is a key point. How do we love? How do we need to be loved? Because sometimes there's a disjunction between how we need to be loved and how we are loved. From this point, McGregor becomes deeply personal, speaking about her own mother, Teresa Joan Penner, who was, by the way, so different from my own mother, I actually laughed out loud in sheer delight. My mother was pretty traditional, a domestic 1950s woman, while McGregor's mother was, I'm quoting here, loud and unabashedly feminist, didn't shave her legs or armpits, never wore high heels, grew her own medicine in her garden, paid the neighborhood kids five cents a tadpole to populate the pond she dug herself. End quote. In spite of this, her mother also worried about her daughter's weight, one of the key sites of exploration in this and other essays in the collection. I'll loop back to this. That is the idea of worrying, trying to shield children from anticipated harm, but then doing more harm in the very act of anticipation. In part, what all children want, I have yet to meet an exception to this, by the way, what all children want 
is to be approved of by their parents. So the experience of not feeling that approval may feel like we are unloved. But again, even if how one expresses love may not be how a person needs to be loved, it doesn't follow that one is unloved. Like my mother, Hannah's mother died of cancer, and like my family, hers splintered apart without her, rendering the constituent familial parts adrift in the world. Also like me, Hannah saw academia as the place to which to turn, but also a place in which she hoped to change the rules by which she herself had been judged. At this point, I'm just going to quote wholesale from her essay as follows. Academia taught me the next step, turning ideas into accomplishments that would help me build a new sense of self, a new identity that lay first in grades and later in grants, publications, and awards. Many of the rules in academia are tacit, requiring a particular kind of attention to observe and follow them, thus rewarding those of us who, by virtue of class, race, and prior educational experience, arrived already trained to read those social cues. And those of us who are in the club continue to be rewarded for playing by the rules. Ultimately, no amount of questioning and critiquing the university will actually dismantle its oppressive structures. End quote. This is a very painful moment of realization for McGregor. That is, her turn to academia as a way of moving past trauma may be seen in itself as further traumatizing, a form of dissociation, as she herself notes, that shifts one further away from one's emotional self and from the value of affect, from caring and sustainable relationships built on kinship. Still, the love and loss related to her mother are central to her as a scholar, feminist, and a human being. Her mother's caring provided an overflowing resource, a well of gifts and talents from which she still draws. I wish I could say more about this and about the other thoughtful and thought-provoking essays in the collection. They may seem at times to be directed toward a more academic audience, but there is so much that is, well, hashtag relatable, that I think you'll want to pick this whole collection up. You won't walk away without thinking more about your relationships with other people and places and your orientation in relation to them, I promise you. I couldn't help connect McGregor's thoughtful essay with what might initially seem to be an unlikely companion piece. Margaret Atwood's newest collection of stories, Old Babes in the Woods, published by McClelland and Stewart. Divided into three sections, the collection's second section is called My Evil Mother. And yes, there is a story of the same name that caught my eye for the purposes of today's episode. As you might expect of Atwood, My Evil Mother is written in this sharp, wry, smart voice. That of the narrator, a woman who looks back on and tries to understand her relationship with her mother. So the story opens with her recollection of an altercation between her and her mother. You're so evil, I said to her. I was 15, the talk back age. Now, if we're paying attention, that first line alerts us to the fact that our narrator is looking back 
and reevaluating this moment when she charges her mother with being, well, a bad mother. The question is raised then, what is it that makes her daughter think so? In this instance, her mother disapproves of her boyfriend. This seems like standard stuff, but it does resonate with what I said earlier. Approval means so much to children. The narrator does feel unloved, and it turns frustrated and manipulated. And while it's clear her mother isn't actually evil, she is um, exceedingly strange. I won't tip my hand here. You'll need to pick up the collection and read the story to find out why. So this turbulent relationship carries on into adulthood, when the narrator has two children of her own, two daughters. After the birth of her first daughter, she and her mother have a major falling out, in some measure because her mother offers to cook her daughter's placenta. Are you insane? The narrator asks her mother. And I have to say, this wasn't far removed from what I myself was thinking. Incidentally, this is not where the title comes from. But this mother is really trying to care for her daughter in the ways she knows how. And as the story develops, the narrator's maturity and insight grows. She sees her mother as a fully realized, fully human being with her own flaws and desires and neuroses. Her mother was, after all, a single parent trying to raise and protect her daughter in the ways she knew best. It's not a small moment of redemption that by the story's resolution, the narrator finds herself speaking to her own daughter in terms that are not altogether unlike those of her own mother. The beauty of this evolving relationship stands in stark contrast with that depicted between the poetic person and her mother in the poetry collection Antonyms for Daughter, published by Signal Press. Crafted by Jenny Poichuk, the poems trace the relationship between a daughter and her mother and the heartbreaking and disturbing and abusive elements by which their relationship was infused. The title, Antonyms for Daughter, is apt. Opposite experiences and feelings coexist simultaneously. How do you love someone you also fear? How can someone be both a mother and not mother? How can one be a daughter and not daughter, as examples? There's actually a poem called Mother's Day, and it captures the polarized emotions that inform most of this collection. In the poem, this particular poem, Boychuk paradoxically yokes together both belonging and separation, shows how this particular mother and her daughter were connected and disconnected. The images in this poem all relate to natural imagery, flowers, gardening, and so on. In one stanza, the narrator muses that she left, quote, a whole bouquet, my small hands laid on your pillow while you slept the occasion away. The way that my small hands is planted unobtrusively into the middle of the stanza, as if of lesser importance in comparison to the bouquet, heightens the sense of invisibility of this daughter, of her needs, to her mother. And the surprising and yet unsurprising last line of her mother's disappearance from this occasion when she was supposed to be honored. The raw and tender elements of the relationship are captured in the stanza that follows, as the poetic person adds, you once showed me how to repot a houseplant, how we must rip apart the roots to encourage new growth. 
End quote. New growth is what the persona seeks, and in this case, it means disentangling herself from a mother who was not up to the task of caring for herself fundamentally and therefore of caring for her daughter. Well, how we love and how we need to be loved largely inform the last work I'm speaking about today, and that is Hold My Girl by Charlene Carr and published by HarperCollins. This novel, a thriller, is her tenth, and it's set on the east coast of Canada. The premise of this novel is really interesting. One of the main characters, Catherine, has been trying with her husband to conceive for a fairly long period. After seven years, she gives birth to a daughter named Rose, only to learn that during the process of in vitro fertilization, her eggs were switched with those of another woman. Well, enter Tess. She's the other woman whose eggs were used in the process, and the process was not successful for her. She lost the baby during pregnancy. So these two women are marked by a series of contrasts, no doubt a deliberate choice on the part of Carr. They are as different as can be in terms of race, education, marital status, income, and so on. But what connects them is their shared desire for Rose. Now, Catherine is a worrier. We can loop back to the comments I made about McGregor's essay in which worrying and anticipating the harms that may come to a child may actually do more harm than the child would otherwise face. Still, Catherine is highly motivated and determined. Tess, however, is fragile in view of past traumatic experiences and the strain of a divorce, a failed relationship in which she tried several times to conceive. She doesn't have the resources that Catherine and her husband have, financial and otherwise. As one might expect, a custody battle ensues, and this raises a series of questions about how we decide who a mother is, who's fit to be a mother and why, and what mothering should look like. And again, it connects back to McGregor's essay about kinship, which isn't always about blood ties. It's about who we decide we're related to, and how we care for them, about how we love, and how we do need to be loved. The resolution of Hold My Girl takes this on directly, arriving at a most surprising result, but reminding the readers that ultimately, how one expresses love and caring may not necessarily align with someone else's expectations. But it doesn't follow that one is unloved. On the contrary, Sometimes, my dear listeners, we are still fiercely, steadily, and passionately loved. This is the takeaway portion of the podcast. A little while ago, I had the pleasure of meeting a highly unusual writer who seems to have lived many lives and careers before becoming a writer, the Vietnamese-Canadian-Quebec-based writer Kim Thuy. She was at one point a lawyer and then a restaurant owner before turning her hand to writing. Now, if you don't know her work, you'll be surprised by the economy of her books, which belie the emotional range and depth and complexity of their narratives. Rue was published in 2009, and it was followed by Man in 2013 and V in 2016, among others. All extremely good and influenced by one of my favorite writers of all time, Alessandro Barico, and my favorite of all of his work, Silk. I actually had a chance to talk to Twee about that. Well, Twee radically departs from this kind of work, if not her past careers, in her delightful 
Secrets from my Vietnamese kitchen, simple recipes from my many mothers. This one is published by Penguin Random House, in which there are more than 50 recipes featured. The tribute to mothers seems like an apt way to conclude this particular episode with a writer whose work I absolutely adore. I recommend anything at all by Kim Thuy. And that's it for today's episode. Please remember to subscribe and rate and review Getting Lit with Linda on whatever platform you choose to listen to your podcasts. The next episode will appear on June 1st, an interview with the fiery, passionate, and impressive Tracy Lindemann, who speaks about her personal experiences with the medical system in her book, Bleed. And after that, we'll have another interview with another one of my favorite authors, Lisa Moore. In the meantime, thank you for tuning in, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.